Well, this past week, I believe the stock market reached a new record high. So if you're an investor, you would have done well. I don't mess around with stocks, but my dad does, so I've come to learn a thing or two. And playing the stock markets seems to me like just maybe a more respectable, sophisticated form of, of gambling. You're trying to buy some company stock at a, at a low price with the hopes that it will increase in value, at which point you can sell it for a profit, and, and good for you if you can do it. I remember back in high school economics class, we did some mock investing, some pretend, and uh, I, for some reason I chose eToys.com, and little did I know this was in the, the middle of the 90s dot-com bust in the late 90s, and I watched as my stock value went down and down and down and never recovered, and I lost all my fake money. A few people win big. I remember being at lunch with a friend a while ago, and his other friend showed up, and this guy was sloppy in appearance, kind of unkempt, not something you'd expect to say that. Just that day, he confessed he had made $500,000 in the stock market, just that day. And that's everyone's dream, I guess, to, to win big in the stock market, but the reality is the vast majority of people end up losing money, such as the nature of, of gambling. You may believe that a stock will go up, but you don't really know the future, so you're ultimately making a bet with the hopes that it will turn out in the end. You're, you're hoping, you're counting on the future. In a somewhat similar way, we can draw an analogy here to faith. In a sense, you can think there, there's a marketplace, a stock exchange of worldviews and religions out there, each claiming to have the most value. And all people must choose to invest in one of these worldviews. The stakes are high, though, because you're investing with your life. Each worldview comes with claims on the afterlife, from heaven and hell to nirvana to nothingness. But these claims are mutually exclusive. One of them is right. All the others are wrong. So you'd better choose wisely and, and make the right investment. You're investing your, your soul. So you better choose well. But no one really knows for sure what, what comes next, at least not by experience, not by sight. All people are living by faith in their choice. Some people choose blindly, some choose pragmatically, some choose traditionally. But everyone, by, by one way or another, makes a choice. For us, though, we unashamedly hedge all of our bets on Christ, and Christ alone. Without turning this into an apologetics lesson, we, we've become convinced that Jesus truly is Lord, and, and the biblical worldview is, is the right one. We've become convinced that the God of the Bible is the true creator God, and and that salvation is found in no one else but in his son, Christ Jesus, who died on the cross and rose for our redemption. That being said, though, it might seem to you that it's getting harder to believe in Jesus. In other words, it's becoming more costly. The market value of Christianity seems to be going down. Numbers are on the decline. Persecution is on the rise. A culture war has already been fought and lost. The way of the world is taking over. Christian voices are being marginalized. So what was once the dominant worldview, the easy choice to place your money, is no longer that way. So how can we still believe? Why don't we change our investment? Something that's maybe on the rise. The early church faced the same question. They lived in a thoroughly non-Christian pagan world that became increasingly hostile to the faith. And to follow Jesus back then was to swim completely against the stream of the culture and just invited persecution, loss of property, imprisonment, and even death. So why did so many people still sign up? 
Why, why were there so many people that were still buying stock in this new startup called Christianity when it was so low in value and came with such a high cost? Well, like today, in part, they were compelled by a hope that in the end, there would be a great reversal of fortunes. It was their hope and contention that in the future, this Jesus would return. And on that day, though, though the values of all the other world, worldviews may soar, on that day, they will be proven false and their, their value will plummet to zero and Christ and his way will be proven true. And those with stock in him will find great reward. Is this a gamble? Well, sure, if that's what you mean by faith, yes. All worldviews are gambles in the sense that none of us can, can truly see the future by experience, by sight. We, we don't know. The atheist, though, who believes in nothing is likewise gambling with his soul. He's betting that Jesus is not Lord because if he is, he's made a poor choice and will have a, a serious day of reckoning. But for us, ours is a confident gamble, a confident faith. And it's centered on a person. Ours is a, is a steadfast hope, not placed on a thing or a place, but on a person. And this person is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this fact actually further sets Christianity apart. Just about every other worldview's concept of heaven is thoroughly man-centered and oftentimes just, just outright hedonistic. It's a place where all of man's desires and appetites are finally fulfilled. But according to biblical Christianity, what is it that makes heaven great? It's simply the place where, where God is and his son and where they dwell together with his people forever. That's it. That, that's what makes it the place we want to be. And we find our delight there, not in, in the various lusts of our flesh or not that maybe we can fly, but simply that we get to be with the Lord and Savior. And accordingly, the primary activity in heaven is what? Worship. There's a distinct God-centeredness to heaven in the Bible where, where God, not man, is being exalted at every turn. And to me, this fact is actually another compelling reason to display that the way of Christ is the true way. For the more you study how all the other world religions define the afterlife, the more you realize how they're all just so man-centered. But for us, heaven is entirely focused on the glory, not of us, but of God and his son, Christ Jesus. And as we've learned in the past few weeks, Christ himself is the treasure of heaven, the great reward. He's the payoff. The payoff is life lived with Christ on high forever. And with this distinction in mind, what truly sets Christianity apart Today we're going to learn even more about what this payoff really looks like. That you've invested well. If you've invested in Christ, you've chosen well. And we're going to learn why that is, how that is. We find a passage that, that shows how your faith in Christ, your investment in Christ, pays off in the end. You can open one more time to Philippians chapter 3. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're finishing up this chapter this morning, this rich chapter Throughout chapter 3, we've seen Paul address some concerns he's had for the Philippian church. Overall, the church had been running well, but Paul sees some obstacles coming up in their path that could trip them up. Specifically, internal division, external opposition are threatening the stability of the church. 
So he writes to warn them in advance and exhort them to just keep their balance and and press on, keep going, stay on the, the narrow path. So back at the beginning of the chapter, Paul began by reminding them of the basis of their race of faith. He recalls the true starting point to even get on this race, which is faith in Christ alone. You're not justified. You're not made right with God by your works, your effort, your self-righteousness. There's only one way to be made right with God, to be justified, and that's on the basis of faith in his Son, where God gives to you the gift of righteousness that you need to be accepted before him. So this salvation, this faith in Christ, marks the, the starting line of a new race, a lifelong race of pursuing Christ and Christ's likeness. And so Paul next reminds them of the continuation of their race. They haven't arrived yet. They're saved in Christ. They're perfect in position, but they're not perfect in practice. And so he writes to, to tell them that, well, now you've now you got to keep running. You've got to press on in the right direction. This is their sanctification. And at the same time, Paul warns them of, of many people who they claim to be running this race, but they're running the opposite direction. So watch out for them. Don't, don't follow them down the wrong way. Stay focused on Christ ahead of you. Keep running and keep running the right way. And then now at the end of the chapter to, to finish things up, Paul reminds them of the goal of their race. As they get back on track to, to finish their course and to press on, they need to be focused on the right goal. There is a prize for completing this race of faith. Paul alluded to it earlier in the chapter. It's the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But it's here at the end, the final two verses where Paul really elaborates on what that prize is all about. What what is the hope that we are running to? What's the payoff? What comes at the end of this race of faith? We find out in the final two verses here. It speaks of glorification, the hope of glory, the hope of heaven. But as we said before, what makes this prize so special is not, not a place, not a thing, but a person. It's all centered on the person of Christ. He is the prize. To be with him, to be made like him, to be fully conformed into his image, that is the hope of glory, the hope of heaven. But as you know, the longer you run in this race, that hope, it can be diminished by by the worries of the world, or we can get distracted from this hope that is meant to be ahead of us, pushing us forward, drawing us forward. We're so easily distracted from it, though, which is why we need reminders, and that's what this is. This is a reminder of of the prize, a reminder of why we're running, what we're running for, why we should press on what's ahead of us, that we've made the right investment. It's a reminder of the reversal that lies at the end of this race, because the longer you run, the, the darker it may seem, and for some, some doubt. Is this really going to pay off? Is this really the right way? What, what will become of this faith in Christ? But here we find steadfast assurance in the hope of Christ. And so with our time, we're just going to explore this brief passage and be reminded of what is to come that we too might, might carry on. Specifically in these last few verses, 19 through 20, we're going to find three essential truths about the end of our race of faith, that you just might be encouraged to press on and finish. Three essential truths about the end of our race of faith that you would be encouraged to press on and finish. 
And we'll read the text as we go, although it's short enough. But number one, our first essential truth has to do with our race's destination. Our race's destination. He says right off the bat, the beginning of verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. The end of our race is heaven. We mentioned last week, there are two ways to go. The way of the world and the way of the Lord. That's it. Two to choose from. The way of the Lord is narrow, though. The gate is small. The way is narrow. That leads to life. There are few who find it, Jesus himself said. But it, it leads, the end of that way is, is heaven, life everlasting. It's, a, it's the right way. And of course, this comes in contrast to the way of the world, which is broad. The gate is wide open. There are many who find it, Christ said. But that broad road, if you, if you follow it to the end, it leads to just one place, and that is destruction. Remember what Paul said in the two verses before, look at verse 18. He said, for many walk, many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And from this, you can see the obvious contrast to us with our our heavenly mindset. Those who belong to the world, though, they, they live in and for the ways of the world, which, look, at that path just runs opposite, completely opposite to the way of God. And so obviously, if you, if you continue down that path, the path of the world, and you end up there, you, you're just going to walk further and further away from God eternally. We also read last week, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it, it bears repeating, where John tells us to not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. This world and those who live for it, they're they're passing away. They're even in the process of passing away. Their end is destruction, a just judgment for sin. We're no better, but for those who have found grace, the gift of grace, who've been put on another path. For us, Paul says next, by way of contrast, we have a different destination. Our, our path, those who've been placed on the path of Christ by grace through faith. You're placed on a road, a narrow way that has an, alter, an entirely different destination, namely heaven. We'll talk more about that destination in, in a minute, but first, in verse 20. Notice how uniquely, though, Paul phrases this destination. It doesn't quite say that we're going to heaven, we'll end up in heaven, although that's true. But he phrases it to suggest we already belong to heaven. He says again, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't say will be, it, it is in heaven. We presently belong to the commonwealth of heaven. This word here for citizenship, it's found only here in the New Testament. It makes you wonder, okay, why does Paul phrase it like this here? Almost surely it has to do with the background of Philippi. You might recall Philippi was a Roman colony 
That meant most of the people in the city would have been Roman citizens, which came with many rights and privileges. And they were known to be quite proud of this. They, they greatly valued their Roman heritage. And as citizens of Rome, they didn't live in Rome proper, but they lived like they were in Rome. They lived like Roman citizens. So they used Roman language. They wore a Roman dress. They adopted Roman names. They built Roman buildings. They obeyed Roman laws. They enjoyed Roman protection. For the pagans, at least, they, they worshipped the Roman emperor. And to top it off, Philippi was founded by a bunch of retired Roman army veterans. So Roman pride runs high in Philippi. So you, you can see why it would be in this letter where Paul would, would have this play on words on citizenship, take this concept which they're very familiar with, which they, they cherish, and use it to teach about another type of citizenship we possess. He's not telling them they're no longer citizens of Rome per se. It's just that for those in Christ, you now have a, a dual citizenship. Those still on earth, in Christ, they and we have been given a dual status in heaven. It's like Ephesians 2.6 says, for those in Christ, in salvation, God raised us up with Christ. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places. Our names have already been written in the heavenly register. The role of citizens, if you're in Christ, your name is already there. And why exactly is Paul drawing this connection, though? This is plan words with citizenship. Well, I think two reasons. One, to direct our lives. Just as the Philippians' daily lives were guided and influenced by their Roman citizenship, so too for Christians, your daily life should be guided and influenced by your heavenly citizenship it should have a bearing on your life think of those who are in heaven now the saints made perfect if, if that's that's our future that that's our future life that's our hope shouldn't we seek to live like that now and that's his point we should adopt their walk their talk their holiness their obedience their love their unity think about how the saints in heaven right now are dwelling in perfect love and unity Shouldn't that be how we live now as presently citizens of heaven? So first, they need to realize that they had a citizenship in heaven that should guide their lives more than their Roman citizenship. It's a, it's a realization we need to make as well. But we're going to save that point actually more for next week. That's what Paul really gets into in chapter 4. But there's a second reason Paul makes his connection to our citizenship in heaven, and that's to give us hope, to direct our lives and to give us hope. And hope, as you know, is an extremely valuable commodity. But of course, it all has to do with where your hope is found. Our hope is not found in the world or the things of the world. This world is passing away and its hopes, its lusts are passing away too. They're false, they're fleeting, it's like, like sand running through your hands, trying to grasp a handful of sand. You can grab it for a moment, but the harder you grab, the more it falls away and, and it just leaves you, in the end, empty-handed. But we're not left without hope. The world is clearly not our hope anymore, but like Jesus said in, in John 18:36, my kingdom is not of this world. When you come to him, he transfers you to his kingdom. The heavenly kingdom 
And there our hope is found. He gives us a, a new home, a better country where our hope is found. It's not found in this world any longer, but in the next. And so accordingly, we should be setting our minds not on earthly things, like verse 19, those people, but on, on heavenly things, on, on the life to come. Practically, it's a powerful lesson to learn. Again, we'll learn next week how this hope transforms our lives, but it also transforms, for example, our suffering, how you, how you suffer. Look, everyone suffers. It's a fallen world. Everyone is affected, believer, unbeliever. The longer you live, the more you suffer. But when those in the world suffer, it only results in the loss of their hope. And they're greeted only with sadness and, and gloom and depression. And that's because suffering usually results in the loss of the things the world cherishes and values. Their health, their wealth, their family, their relationships. But for us, even as we suffer the loss of all things, we don't lose our hope. And that's because our hope is, is in Christ. And this heavenly inheritance, which Peter says is reserved for you and, and will not perish, cannot be taken away. In fact, our hope, it's only intensified the more you suffer. Because as you suffer, whatever it is, trials and tribulations in life, as a Christian, it, it should become only more evident and clear as you suffer. This world is for sure not our home. It's not our hope. It's passing away. This thing I was tempted to, to find my joy in, it just got taken out. And th- this, this can't be it. This isn't it. And it actually sharpens and resets our gaze back on Christ, on heaven, where our only hope is really found. But it's a deeper hope that can't be taken away. It's the only meaningful hope and joy there is, the hope of heaven. Paul himself, he really experienced this intensified longing for heaven. Why? Because he suffered so much. You read his sufferings, just read Second Corinthians. You read his sufferings, and yeah, he wins, right? When it comes to suffering for Jesus. Like Christ himself said, that he would have to suffer much on account of his name. And Paul suffered. But we also see Paul, and he, he seems like, man, he's like the holiest guy around. He's such a, a passion for the Lord, such a longing for the Lord. Well, connect those dots. That the suffering of this world, of his gospel call, just intensified. There's, there's not much left here for us. We're aliens. We're strangers. We're pilgrims on this world. We're just passing through at this point. And the more we lose, well, the more it reminds us we only have one thing to begin with, and that's Christ. We've already suffered the loss of all things, like Paul said. In fact, back in chapter 1, he says this in verse 23, if you look back there. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He has competing hopes and competing desires. Part of him, look, wants to stay, keep living, that he can keep serving the church and, and the Philippians. But he knows it's better just to just to go, just to depart. And there's a sense, like we learned back there, as Paul was going to stand trial before Caesar that and give his own defense, he could have, in a sense, just given no defense. He could have said a few things that would have guaranteed his execution, really. And in a way, he could almost choose to just depart. But he did not. Anyway, Paul has suffered much for so long in his race. 
At the time, he was currently imprisoned, facing death. But like I said, it only purified his desire to depart and be with the Lord. It's, it's very much better. It's, it's very much better, he said. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul said, Not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. That sounds crazy. We exult in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Philippians, they were starting to suffer. That's partly why Paul is is writing to them. He could see some of them starting to look to false hopes in the midst of their hard time. They're starting to have a hard time. And we do the same thing today. It's, it's so easy to do. It's the easy response. Life gets hard. Things aren't going well. Spiritually, physically, whatever it is, just some trial, some tribulation in life, just making life not fun, a little miserable. And there is a right response to seek the Lord even more, just to, to double down on your, your passion for the Lord, to draw closer to him. But that's hard. It's so much easier just turn on the TV. Just watch something and just, just just distract yourself. Just fade away. Just don't engage. Just distract yourself and enjoy some of the passing entertainment and pleasures of our world. Hey, we live the best time for it. We have Netflix. There's, it's so easy just to be distracted and just to waste your suffering, to waste your trial, like John Piper famously said. Instead of wrestling with God in prayer and seeking a, a deeper communion with him, in the midst of your trial. That's what he's trying to do, to draw you closer through the fire. Well, it's, it's just easier just to stop running, take a break, find some distractions, and take it easy. Reminds me of Pilgrim's Progress. Christian and faithful, they emerge from the wilderness on the way to the celestial city. But they find a city they must pass through on the way. And the city is called Vanity Fair. This town is a perpetual festival, only it caters to all the lusts of the flesh. Delights of all sorts are featured in these booths, like a carnival, from greed to sensuality. It has a little something for everybody. You're going to find something you, you like in Vanity Fair. And so it goes today for, for pilgrims, Christians, on a journey to the celestial city. To get there, you've got to pass through this world, this, this Vanity Fair. The question is, are you going to make it through or are you going to turn aside for a little bit? This road is long and it's arduous, so why not just rest for a spell? The danger, though, is those who stop and who turn aside to Vanity Fair, they often stay there. They, they never get back on the race and they end up in the same judgment of, of Vanity Fair. But it's called Vanity Fair for a reason. There's nothing there but emptiness. It's vanity. It's chasing after the wind. There's no real soul satisfaction found there. And so for us, just press on. Just pass through this world. Press on. Don't turn aside to the easier, the cheaper distractions. But keep setting your mind on the things above. Look to the goal. It's harder, but it's better. Because there's a deeper joy and satisfaction found in the Lord. What your soul is longing for and crying out for inside of you, there's only one place you're going to find it. And it takes a long race of perseverance, but as we keep saying in Philippians 3, just press on. 
let your sufferings and hardships in this life only purify your desire for your heavenly home. Let it build your anticipation for it. And speaking of, that brings us to number two, our race's anticipation. A second essential truth of our race's end we find here. Related, of course, from destination to our race's anticipation. Look back at verse 20. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our race's destination is heaven. We long for heaven, but again, not so much because of the place, but because of the person who's associated with that place. That's what makes heaven great. It's just the place we want to be because that's where Jesus is found. So that's where we want to go. You know, for the guys in the room, how many times have you gone to high tea by yourself? You know, I'm talking about those places where you sit at some dainty table covered in, I think, what they're called, doilies. And they serve you a fancy, you know, fancy meal, a fancy tea in fine china with you know, tiny, tiny, tiny sandwiches. How many times have you done that by yourself? I'm going to guess and say never, zero. But if your wife wanted to go there, your girlfriend wanted to go there, you'd probably go, not because of the place, but because of the person, that that's what makes the place a place you want to be. Or like a concert arena. No one goes to a concert when, it, when it's empty, when there's no one there and just hangs out. It's not a destination per se, but what makes it a place you want to be is someone is there performing that you want to see, and their presence turns it into a great experience for you. It's, it's the person that makes the place. And in a dim way, this is what makes heaven great. Because we go there to fellowship with the triune God of the universe. We experience the glory of restored fellowship between the creator and, and the creature, as it should be. We get a foretaste, a preview of this restored fellowship in, of course, the last two chapters of Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 3, where John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. In chapter 22, verse 3 and 4, he says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face. You know, in part, the story of the Bible is the story of paradise lost and then paradise found. But again, note, we never get some hyper-spiritual view of, of heaven, of paradise, where we're just sitting on a cloud in some state of meditation. We're in deep contemplative thought for eternity. That's, that's not the picture of heaven. At the same time, we don't get this hyper-carnal picture of heaven as well, where we're just the god of a planet. We get 72 virgins. We have golden mansions or endless servants. It's not the picture of heaven as well. Rather, heaven is pictured as being completely christ centered and we live to serve him to exalt him to glorify him to enjoy him now some would say that that sounds boring and look if you find no joy in serving christ in this life yeah you probably won't find joy in serving christ in the next life but that may just indicate you you don't really know the lord because those who have been redeemed we get a, we get a foretaste of the joy 
of just being a bondservant of Christ. There's no better place. There's no better relationship than being known by the Savior. As humans, our greatest joy is found where? In our relationships. On a horizontal level, it's our relationships. We're created as relational creatures. We get a little preview of this in, in friendship, in marriage, in the church. We find our, our joy comes, the deepest joy in life comes from relationships. Joy is meant to be shared. In fact, joy is not complete until it is shared. And so accordingly, the greatest joy comes from life shared with God. That's got to be the greatest joy, the greatest relationship. And that's what heaven is, eternal life lived in fellowship with God. That's something God created all people to long for, and rightly so. The problem we have, though, is, is sin. We've rebelled against God. We've violated his holiness. We're defiled before him. And, and we're actually we're not, we're not worthy to dwell in his presence. We, we, we actually don't belong in that place to see his face. Who can see his face and live? We're, we're sinners. The wages of sin is death. This means separation from God and his goodness. And that's what judgment eventually entails, just an eternal separation from all the goodness of God in hell. And to make matters worse, there's nothing we can do about this on our own. Left to ourselves, we're just, because of our sin, we're cut off from God. We're, we're separated. We're, we have to be away and apart from him, and we just, we just stay there. We can't get back. We're outside the camp. Remember that in the Old Testament? Those who were defiled or unclean, for whatever reason, they had to go outside the camp, outside the presence of God's people and God himself. You're barred. You have to go out. You're disfellowshipped, at least for a time, because you're unclean. And like Isaiah says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. We all deserve to be barred from the gates of heaven. We're not perfectly righteous to be there. But this, of course, leads to the good news of Christ Jesus. And this is why we eagerly wait for him, because he's what? It says, Savior. He's Savior. He's the one who died on the cross to make a sacrifice for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins, to rise for our new life. The one who gives to us his own righteousness, that he, he takes our, our filthy garments off pays for our sin, and exchanges them and clothes us with his robe of righteousness where we now we can enter. We, we now belong because of him in that heavenly home. And if you believe in him as Lord and Savior, if you follow him and make him your heart's treasure, he promises to do this for you, to save you. Save you from what? Well, from sin, from its consequences, from that eternal separation from God. And so notice verse 20, we wait for him who's both Lord and Savior. This might be another play on words here, actually, for Paul and the Philippians. Although Jesus is referred to as Lord and Savior plenty elsewhere, you may not know this, but both of those words were taken and used by Caesar as a title for himself. And so Caesar held the title Savior of the world. Augustus took the title Savior of humankind. In the Old Testament, of course, there's only one Lord and Savior, and that's Yahweh God, Isaiah 45:21. There's no Savior except Yahweh. 
And likewise, there's no Lord. He's the Lord of Lords, the one to whom every knee will bow. But it's here in Philippians where Paul takes both of those terms and uh, applies them to Christ. Both of these titles of deity, which were applied to Caesar, who claimed to be the divine man, but Paul unashamedly places them on, on Christ, the true div- divine man. Christ is the true Lord of Lords. We learn back in chapter 2, 10 through 11, the one to whom every knee will bow. And here, emphasis on him being the savior of the world, the only savior of mankind, our only hope. The question, though, is, is Jesus your savior? Have you made him yours? Have you embraced him in your heart as your only hope of reconciliation with God? You have to go all in in your investment in Jesus. No diversification is allowed. You have complete and utter faith in him. That's what it means to follow him and believe in him. And and if you've done this, you see how as he transforms you, he becomes your heart's desire. In John 17, Jesus records, or we have a record of of Christ's high priestly prayers, prayer for his disciples. In chapter 17, verse 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, eternal life is not just a quantity of life, but also a quality of life. And it's defined by the joy of knowing God and his Son. We have this life right now in principle, but if yet we remain in the world, and so hence Jesus goes on to pray in John 17, verse 14. He says of us, future disciples, he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. But I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. You see, Jesus has a purpose for us. That salvation, instead of taking us directly to heaven, he leaves us and he sends us into the world, just like his father sent him into the world. He's got work for us to do. And so there's our race. We've been commissioned by the Lord to to run through this world. We're not a part of it, but we're here to do work. But at the same time, Christ himself did not fail to to mention the end of this race. And so he finishes that prayer in John 17 and says this, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. That you may see my glory, or rather that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so we see that little window into the Lord's own desire, which is for us, his sheep, eventually, after the race, to be with him where he is. And so he will come to to take us there. Let me throw a, a deep thought at you, a question. Just think to yourself, what's the greatest gift God could ever give to his creation? It's the greatest gift he could ever give. The answer is, himself it's himself just think what greater gift could he give what what other answer could you come up with whatever you answer that becomes the greatest good in the universe but is there a greater good than god himself are our possessions greater than god or or even pleasure 
peop, other people greater than God himself? See, there's no greater good than God. 72, vir, 72 virgins, that's not a greater gift than God himself. So God's plan for those who trust in Christ, Scripture teaches his real plan is to give to his people the greatest gift. That's what heaven is. And what is that gift? It's just himself. It's your privilege of being able to be with him in his presence, to behold his glory. This is the ultimate self-giving love of God, but only comes to those in Christ. And as a final step to make us fit for such an eternal life, a life lived in God's presence, there's one more truth about the end of our race of faith. Number three, our race's transformation. Our race's transformation. Verse 21. We're eagerly anticipating the Savior, verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Here we find God's provision for a new body explained. If God's plan is to give us the greatest gift, which is life lived with him eternally, in his presence, it might seem to you that we're going to need a, a new body fit for such an eternity because clearly this one's not going to last. And that's what we have here. And so we find our, our ultimate hope is resurrection. It's the hope of resurrection. You may have thought that your race of faith ends at death. And in a sense it does. At death you're freed from the flesh. Your redeemed spirit goes to be with the Lord while your body perishes and returns to dust. This is part of the curse. Our bodies are unredeemed. But this is not our final state. God created us to have two parts, body and soul. And so our redemption is actually not complete until our glorified spirits are later joined to a new glorified body. And so again, our hope is, is that day. That's the real finish line, the hope of glorification, the hope of resurrection, when we're given a new risen, glorified body, fit for eternity. And that's what Paul longs for here, this transformation. The exact nature of these bodies is left to some speculation. We can only say so much. Learning from Christ's resurrection, there's, there's some continuity. It's a real body. But some discontinuity, it's an eternal body. You read 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44, you get a little preview. Just think, as a seed is to a plant, so our present bodies are to our future bodies. That's the analogy he gives. There's going to be some development, some, some similarity, but some difference as well. But none, needless to say, we look forward to this transformation when we will be changed. Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection, promises to, to take us with him and to raise us up as well. And accordingly, this passage makes clear that this transformation will be accomplished by Jesus. And he will exert his own power, which he has to subject all things to himself, to, to bring us to that ultimate new life. I've heard people ask me several times you know, about you know, resurrection. They say, well, okay, what happens to people who were cremated? You know, their, their, their bodies have been hopelessly scattered across the face of the earth. So I mean, how, can, how can they really be like reassembled? 
Or I always say, what about people eaten by a shark? Like, they've been digested. What happens to their bodies? But it's missing the point entirely. Yeah, I take you get it. This is the power of God we're talking about here. Christ's power of resurrection, realize that's the same power of creation. The same power where God just spoke everything into existence. And our bodies are not merely refashioned, they're remade. And Jesus, he has that power. Like Spurgeon said, at the trumpet sound, no particle will disobey the summons of Christ. Caesar, at the time, claimed to be the savior of the world with the power to bring all the peoples into subjection. But where is he now? He's in the dust. Christ is not. He's risen, proving he has the power to raise you from the dust as well. And ultimately, that's where our longing is fixed on Christ, specifically here, his return. Because his return marks this transformation. That's when it will take place. When Christ returns for his church first at the rapture, all in Christ will be changed and our glorification will be made complete. 1 Corinthians 15 50 through 53 says, Brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must put on the imperishable, And this mortal must put on immortality. So this is why we wait and this is why we we press on. Why we keep running with an eye to heaven. This This is the payoff. We long for heaven because we long for Jesus. We long for Jesus because we long for salvation. Even the redemption of our bodies. But that's not an end in and of itself. That's really just a means to the ultimate end, which is just life with God. Fellowship with the triune God forever. That's the goal. That's the prize. That's what we're running for. And so, just press on. Like we keep saying over and over and over in Philippians 3, just just keep running. Just persevere. Even when the race gets tough, trials and tribulations come, persecution, suffering comes. Again, it's so easy to just take a stop, take a little rest by Vanity Fair. But there's, there's only emptiness there. And again, those who linger long, they, they typically just, just stop running. And when Christ returns, those people will find a, a harsher judgment. But the right response is simply to endure. The message of, of all Philippians 3 is just keep running, keep running the right way, and now keep running with an eye to heaven. Keep running, running home. And to find your hope and your consolation in the promise of heaven, the promise of Christ, his return, and ultimately just life with him, God and, and creature together again. Look, everyone on the planet ultimately knows there's something wrong here. There's something wrong with this world. And we face it every time someone dies. As we encounter the great equalizer of death and the sting that it brings, it reminds us this is a fallen world. This, there's something broken here. This is this is painful. And to this, the world has no response, no answer, no hope. That's because they've turned away from the only one who gives hope, and that is the Lord. But realize, Christ 
himself overcomes even the sting of death. And so 1 Corinthians 15 continues and says this in verse 54. He says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus gives us the victory. He's our vindication. He's our hope. But you must go to him. And you must stay with him. Even when the race takes you through the valley, you must look to him and cling to him. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. You just got to keep running with endurance. He will hold on to you. Like Jesus said, in the world, you have tribulation. But take courage, for I have overcome the world. And so just place your confidence in Christ. Be, be confident in your investment. You made the right choice. And, and place all of your bets on him. He will deliver when he returns. In the meantime, you just run to him all lifelong, knowing that God will give you that prize of the upward call. Just stay faithful. Keep running. Be assured you made the right investment. And my hope is that you can say, whenever your race comes to an end, you can say along with Paul, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, where he says, the time of my departure has come, but I've fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we pray this verse resonates with us. This whole passage, this whole morning resonates with our hearts and, and instills in us this hope, the hope of heaven, which is really the hope of Christ and life with him. A life you will make us fit to live as you transform our bodies, giving us what we need fit for eternity. Purify this hope in our lives, Lord. You give it to us to direct our lives and to give us even greater hope. And and so we need you. We ask for you to to sharpen our focus. For any here who have been distracted from the race, Lord, may, may their eyes be opened. May they see there's nothing but vanity there. The only meaning, purpose, joy, and fulfillment is found in in Christ and right relationship with him. So get them back on their race. For others who may have not even started their race, may they see the futility of this life. All will perish and, and return to dust. But Christ is their only hope as well. And may they turn to him and cry out to him and, and find renewal. First of their spirits and then on that day of their bodies as well. Sanctify us, Lord, in this hope that we would run well, run home, run the right way, run with endurance. Just keep us going by your grace for your glory. And may we long, eagerly anticipate that day when, when Christ comes to take us home. In his name we pray. Amen.